thanks uh, very much, uh, Clark. And uh, it's a joy for me to uh, be the lecturer tonight. I really enjoy these uh, weekly lectures. And uh, the Bible is, of course, uh, right at my heart. And I'm always thrilled to talk on the scriptures. So before we begin, let us pray. Lord God, in the midst of crisis, you brought good in and through the lives of your servants, Naomi and Ruth. Help us now by your Holy Spirit to understand how you accomplished your will through their faithfulness and resourcefulness, that we in turn might live for you and bring about your salvation in the midst of the struggles of our own lives through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, before I begin, I just wanna say that I have a minimal PowerPoint. Uh, it's there to just help you see the structure of everything. Um, so the, the structure will be available to you all the way through, but the details are not there. But I do want to give credit to some of my sources that have been inspired. Richard Bauckham is the Bible Mail, uh, a sermon uh, by Larry Hurtado, a great scholar, and uh, Judith Cates and Gail Korski reading Ruth. So I just want to give them credit. And I also am thankful for uh, David Atkinson's commentary as well. So in, uh, in line with the current stresses, we uh, are talking about loss and uh, struggles. Uh, many of us have suffered personal loss, uh, tragedy, uh, crisis in relationships, uh, financial challenge, major health crisis. Uh, there's also suffering on the wider scales, such as the, the uh, uh, COVID pandemic, there are natural disasters, uh, disasters and so on. It's so easy for the frailties of human experience or existence or the ravages of nature, forces beyond our control, to strip away much of what we take for granted. But it's also amazing how so many people can endure hardship and pitch in to help one another where possible. And in the face of natural disasters and personal tragedies, we cry out to God for answers. Where is God in all of this? Is there anything God can show us in the midst of the pain and the suffering? Well, I see two things. First, God is sovereign. He is ultimately in control. And two, a crisis brings about the best in people. And these just happen to be the two major themes running through the book of Ruth that we'll be looking at this evening. First is God's sovereignty. God's role in the crisis is faced by the two key characters, Naomi and Ruth, seems quite hidden until the final chapter. In fact, he seems to be absent after, as one crisis after another hits Naomi and her family. But the book of Ruth portrays a God who is at work behind the scenes. And we'll see that rather than working through what we call the miraculous, God works through ordinary everyday interactions and occurrences. And then we will re-examine the interaction between God's sovereignty and our free will. We'll see that God can accomplish his will and stay in charge while allowing for our freedom and responsibility. And, and that he does so because he is a God of grace. All this we can see in the book of Ruth. 
Well, that leads us to the second theme, the importance of exemplary human character in the midst of suffering and challenge. And we will see that it is the faithfulness, the dedication, the resourcefulness and the ingenuity, the risk-taking and sacrifice of God's people, Naomi and Ruth, that enabled God to accomplish his will. They lived out God's laws in their lives and their relationships. They were obedient to him and he was able to work. What's more, they were women. And we'll see that the book of Ruth reveals a unique perspective on the importance and place of women in God's plan. So we'll look at both of these themes tonight and uh, beginning with the second human character. And we'll look at Naomi and then Ruth. All these things will be up later on as well. And then uh, we end with the first, God's sovereignty. And in the middle, we will look, see that the book of Ruth reveals a feminine perspective not seen elsewhere. And we have a conclusion. But before we do any of this, we must set the scene by outlining the story of the book. So the book of Ruth is found between Judges and 1 Samuel the story itself taking place at the time of the judges around 1100 BC and about 100 years before the first kings Saul and David. Now Ruth is like a modern short story or even as Clark and I were discussing from the time of Jane Austen. It is full of suffering, danger, interesting characters, love, romance, intrigue, suspense, joy, and a surprise ending. It begins with an Israelite family suffering from famine in their hometown of Bethlehem, taking refuge for about 10 years in the neighboring pagan state of Moab across the Jordan. Now, the husband, Elimelech, dies, leaving his wife, Naomi, a widow. And then the sadness continues as her two sons, who have married Moabite women, also die, leaving all three women destitute. And in those days, a woman was dependent upon her father, her husband, or her sons for survival, as there was no legitimate profession open to women. They could not even own property in their own right. So left without support, Naomi sets out to return home to Bethlehem and urges her two daughters-in-law to return home to their own people, their culture, and their religion, and to build a new life. One does, but the other, Ruth, out of love for her mother-in-law, vows to stay by and support Naomi, and so stays with, and so returns with her. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Ruth 1.16. So on returning home to Bethlehem, Ruth, even though a member of the despised foreign state of Moab, earns the respect of the townspeople and especially Boaz, a relative of Naomi's, through her hard work and devotion to her mother-in-law. And the opening verse of chapter two lets us in on a crucial fact unknown to Ruth. Naomi has a relative, Boaz, a man of wealth and standing in the community. And this piece of information is vital to the development of the story. In ancient Israelite law, a near relative, male near relative, was required to marry a childless widow to raise up a child to inherit the dead husband's estate. 
That's Deuteronomy 25, verse 5. This is the concept of kinsman redeemer, which is constantly referred to in the book. Now, we, the readers, know that if Ruth could marry Boaz, then her and Naomi's problems would be solved. But the existence of Boaz and his relationship is unknown to Ruth as she sets out to the fields to forage for food by gleaning the leftover grain after the harvesters have passed by. She happens to end up in a field belonging to Boaz and catches his eye. We learn that Ruth's good reputation is already known in the community, and we discover that Boaz is a generous man of faith and integrity as he allows Ruth to take full advantage of gleaning rights in his fields, and he supplies her with additional provisions and gives physical protection. That's all in chapter two. Now, a foreign, a young foreigner and attractive single woman was at great risk, verse 22 of chapter two, in those tumultuous times, which unfortunately have not changed that much. Ruth works very hard, six to seven, 17 to 18, and takes food home to Naomi. At this point, Naomi discovers that Ruth has been foraging in the fields of Boaz, and she tells Ruth his identity and relationship to them. End of chapter two. Now, in chapter three, following this initial positive contact with Boaz, Naomi sees this as an opportunity to gain security for both of them through the marriage of Boaz to Ruth. Knowing that he qualifies as a kinsman redeemer, Naomi counsels Ruth as to how to let Boaz know her willingness, even as a foreigner, to be married to him. She is to approach him under the cover of darkness on the threshing floor after quite a night of revelry by lying beside him and uncovering his feet. This gesture by Ruth is to invoke her kinsman redeemer right to marriage to the next of kin. By approaching him in this way, she avoids shaming him in public should he find no favor in her and decline her offer. Boaz's response indicates that he understands the gesture of the uncovering of the feet and is happily surprised that she would want to marry him, an older man. He then reveals that there is another relative nearer than him who must be given the opportunity first to fulfill this role of kinsman redeemer. And this occurs in the final chapter, the beginning, uh, where, which is set at the village gate, which in those days was the area where the men of the village met and it met and was seen as kind of uh, a judgment hall, uh, judicial matters were settled in the gate. The, the nearer relative declines his option and Boaz openly declares his intention to assume the role of kinsman redeemer and take Ruth as his wife. The final scene at the end of chapter four reverts back to the female world as the neighborhood women rejoice with Naomi when a son, Obed, is born to Ruth, Boaz, and Ruth. And we readers then discover in the final verses that through him, she becomes the great-grandmother of Israel's great shepherd king, David. And the last revelation is the unexpected climax of the whole book and the answer to the question about God's sovereignty. Where is God in all of this? God's plan has been achieved through a crisis which brings out the godly qualities of character of both Naomi and Ruth, to which we will turn first. Now, in terms of character, most people focus on the personality and devotion of Ruth. After all, the book's named after her. However, I believe God would have us look at Naomi first. 
two things shine out in this book about Naomi, her relationship with God and her relationship to her daughters-in-law. In terms of her relationship with God, we see that what might appear an ambivalence. In chapter one, on return to Bethlehem, she asks that her name be changed from Naomi, pleasant, to Mara, bitter. Verse 20, four times in verses 20 to 21, Naomi laments over God's handling of the situation. The Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Naomi does not mask her pain and anguish behind a smile or the pretense, oh, I'm just fine. Like the psalmists and the prophets, she is not afraid to express how she really feels about the situation God has allowed to happen. Her grief and anguish come out in her comment, verse 13, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. However, in this expression of pain and even anger, Naomi still holds on to the fact that what she has received is somehow from the Lord's hands. She still trusts him even in the midst of the sorrow. And this is confirmed by her use of the name, the Almighty El Shaddai in verses 20 and 21, which refers to God's durability, his solidity, his trustworthiness. It speaks throughout Israel's history. I'm referring, I'm quoting from David Atkinson here, of the hope of God's protection at a time of uncertainty. Then we see Naomi is still able to entrust her daughters-in-law to God in verses eight to nine. May the Lord show kindness to you. May the Lord grant each of you will find rest. So Naomi's faith, it's no prosperity gospel. Come to Jesus and all your problems will be solved. But faith in a God who is in charge, even when the situation looks the opposite. As many of you know, my email signature says in a quote from Philip Yancey, faith means believing in advance, what only makes sense in reverse. Faith is believing in advance, what only makes sense in reverse. Naomi trusted God even in the midst of adversity, and this faith must have impacted Ruth at a very deep level, as we shall see. Now we move to Naomi's relationship from her Naomi's relationship to God to her relationship with her daughters-in-law. She is a mother-in-law. And in that society, mothers-in-law were the dominant women. They could be tyrannical. Sorry to any mother-in-laws listening. They had a chance to get back for all the oppression they had experienced from their mothers-in-law by bossing around their daughters-in-law. But we do not see Naomi doing this. She could have ordered Ruth and Oprah to follow her and care for her needs, but instead she frees them. She tells them that they are young and attractive and that they should have a second chance at marriage and security. She will be a dead weight to them. Both daughters-in-law protest and Orpah departs only after Naomi insists. However, Ruth clings to Naomi and will not leave her. And these words reckon come down to us over 3000 years don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, will I die. And there I will be buried. 
May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. Verses 16 to 17. Now this surely reveals great things about Ruth's character, but it also says much about Naomi. Her lack of prejudice about her foreign daughters at law must have spoken to Ruth. Moabites in particular were seen as enemies of Israel because of the harsh treatment that Moab gave them when they were escaping Egypt and on their way to the promised land some few hundred years earlier. Deuteronomy describes this relationship as follows. No Ammonite or Moabite or any of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord even down to the 10th generation. For they did not come out to meet you with bread and water on your way when you came out of Egypt and they hired Balaam son of Beor to pronounce a curse on you. Deuteronomy 23. Now, Naomi's willingness to free her daughters-in-law shows how free she is from prejudice and normal expectations. Even in the midst of her own sorrow and bitterness, Naomi is considerate of others. Her crisis has revealed her true character. No wonder Orpah and Ruth didn't want to leave her. Now, Naomi wasn't perfect, but she was a great witness for her people and her God, even in the midst of tragedy. Ruth's willingness to embrace the true God must have stemmed from this witness. Of course, the question for us is, do we realize how we are impacting the spiritual lives of others through our daily lives? Not only when things are going well, but especially when things are going wrong. But when we turn to Ruth, we also see the two things. One is her faithfulness and dedication. The other is her risk-taking and sacrifice. So Naomi's impact on Ruth's life was obviously significant, but it is Ruth's great affirmation of faithfulness and dedication that has come down to us, as I said, over 3,000 years of history. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Ruth gives up her own nation and family, her own future and security for another. Here is great personal loyalty, which speaks deeply to our age of individuality and self-interest. We stress so much our own satisfaction and meeting our own needs. Ruth speaks of devotion to another and supporting Naomi in her needs. The Israelites on hearing this story would certainly see parallels with Abraham leaving his native land and security to follow the call of the one true God. Like him, Ruth did not know what the future would hold. There was only uncertainty, unfamiliarity, and possibly rejection. This made the step of faith doubly difficult. But Ruth was willing to do it for Naomi's sake and for the sake of the God Naomi had reflected in her life. She exhibited faithfulness and dedication. And then in chapter three, we see a further aspect of godly character in Ruth, and that is risk-taking and sacrifice. Now, in the story of Ruth, we can see that sexual harassment, so much in the news these days, is nothing new. An unmatched and foreign woman would probably have been, quote, fair game. There were risks involved that night in going to the all-male setting of the threshing floor after quite a party. Not only was there danger to Ruth's person, there was danger in being misunderstood by Boaz. So all the preparations and careful instructions by Naomi 
I believe that Ruth took great risk that night. Then there was sacrifice. Again, parallels to Abraham, also a man of, who took risks and made sacrifices when called by God to leave his familiar and comfortable surroundings in civilized Mesopotamia. I believe they had flush toilets. To move to Canaan, the wild, unknown territory fraught with danger and hardship, he sacrificed his comfort and security to embrace a new way of life and obedience in relationship with the true God. Ruth had already sacrificed her own country, culture, and religion for the sake of Naomi and her God. Now she was willing to sacrifice perhaps even her own personal happiness. Boaz was no spring chicken, but she was willing to marry him in order to provide security for her mother-in-law and herself, and at the same time, give him great joy. As he himself says, verse 10 of chapter 3, this kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You've not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. Fortunately for Ruth, her risk-taking is rewarded. Boaz remembers, recognizes her worth and honorable intentions and is moved to take action as a possible kinsman redeemer. And now, my daughter, verse 11, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All my fellow townsmen know that you are a woman of noble character. In setting out to serve another, her mother-in-law and her mother-in-law's God, Ruth was willing to take risks and sacrifice her own well-being. And it's in the final verses of the book that we discover that Ruth and Naomi's personal acts of sacrifice and devotion, risk-taking and sacrifice, fit into God's overall plan for humanity. We learn that Ruth is to become the great-grandmother of King David. Now, before we go on to exploring the interaction between God's sovereignty and human action and character, I want to focus on how the book of Ruth reveals a different perspective on the life, on the place of women in God's plan. It moves us away from thinking that God works only out of a male perspective. Looking at much of the Bible, we can see that it does focus mainly on male interests and characters. In many Old Testament stories, most of the key characters are male. Activities such as war and politics are those almost exclusively carried out by men in ancient Israel. Most of the women, when they appear, are seen from the perspective of the male characters, such as Sarah, the wife of Abraham, or the wives of other leaders. But the book of Ruth is a corrective to this. Here is a story about women. Women are not just interesting characters, but central players of the story. Men are on the sidelines. For example, the husbands who die in chapter one are really off stage. The others are bit players, part of the supporting cast. In a time of male dominance in social and economic systems, these dependent women are praised for their devotion and faithfulness, their resourcefulness and ingenuity, their risk-taking and sacrifice. What's more, the story is told from their perspective. We feel Naomi's bitterness and pain at her losses. We struggle with the women as they devise ways of securing support and a marriage relationship. The whole book, except for the beginning of chapter four, is from a woman's point of view. There at the beginning of chapter four, we move to the village gate where the legal transactions take place. And we hear of the discussions between Boaz and the elders or men. The elders bless the offspring that is to come to Boaz through Ruth 
and that will perpetuate his line in Israel. But then, the rest of the chapter, there was a switch in, lo in locale from the city gate to the household. And we immediately move back to the women's perspective. The same events are viewed from a women's perspective. The neighborhood women come and they name the child that is born to Ruth and refer to him as Naomi's son. He is the one who will bring her security in her old age. This feminine perspective in the book has led some to believe that the book of Ruth may have even been written by a woman. Now, when we look at the place of women today, there's been much improvement in the concept of equality, but in many quarters, there is still an assumption that they are disadvantaged and even a second class. Woman has fears a man doesn't have simply just by being a woman, for example, going out by themselves at night. But in the book of Ruth, women are not stupid or incompetent. They are strong, resourceful, full of intelligence, clever, and personally impressive. They begin in a pit and end up out of the pit due to their own resourcefulness, not men's. The book of Ruth corrects the view that the Bible is anti-woman and leads us in the direction that Christ took in his treatment of women as persons of equal importance with men. Think of uh, Mary's sister of Martha, his reaction to desire to learn, conversation with the woman in Samaria, the longest conversation with anybody in the Bible, uh, his gracious treatment of the woman caught in the act of adultery, where was the man, and the fact that women were the first great witnesses of the resurrection. The valuing of women is not a newfangled idea in a liberated world, but is inherent in the teaching and example of Christ and have their seeds way back over 3000 years ago in the early workings of God and his people Israel as demonstrated in the book of Ruth. We now move on to examine the interaction between God's sovereignty and our free will, the intertwining of God's design and human activity. In the book of Ruth, we will see that the question of how God accomplishes his will and yet stays in charge still allows for our freedom and responsibility. We'll look at the fact that God is not absent, but at work behind the scenes. God uses human initiative and resourcefulness, and God works through the everyday. We'll conclude by seeing that these realities reveal that God's will is not static, but dynamic, and that this is because God is a God of grace. So first, God is not absent, but his work that's at work behind the scenes. So as we've seen, Ruth is a, is a st story of great personal loss and struggle uh, through the famine, bereavement, the challenge to survive. And even though God does not appear once, he doesn't have a single line in the whole book. The question of where is God underlies the whole book. We need to recognize that in the earlier chapters, God seems absent. He gets the blame for the tragic things that have happened in the lives of the key characters, Naomi and Ruth. As we heard, Naomi laments in verse one in chapter one, the Lord has afflicted me, the Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. But then even in the darkness of her sorrow, we have seen there are strong rays of light. When she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home. And then we are encouraged by the wonderful declaration of Ruth that she will not leave her mother-in-law, where you go, I will go, and so on. So God provides a support for Naomi uh, in, the, in the person of Ruth. 
So God may appear absent, but he's not forgotten those who are afflicted. He is at work behind the scenes. This continues into chapter two, where the opening verse reveals that Naomi has a relative on her husband's side from the clan of Elimelech, a man of standing whose name was Boaz. This is a clue that we are to look at things from a wider perspective, God's. The phrase in verse three, as it turned out, she found herself working in a field belonging to Boaz, appears to be coincidental, but because of the first verse, we know otherwise. Naomi confirms this when she declares in verse 20, chapter two, the Lord bless him. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. Naomi's honest lament and frustration with God in chapter one has given way to joyful gratitude for his ongoing care. God is arranging things. He is in charge after all. And that's confirmed in chapter four, when God's ultimate plan and intentions are revealed. God is able to marry Ruth. Boaz is able to marry Ruth over the better claims of an era relative, and the son Obed is born to them. And at this happy turn of events, the local women say to Naomi, praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. So a lot of sadness may have occurred, and God may have appeared to be absent, but he has been there all along and brought about joy and security through the marriage and the birth of a son. And as we've heard in the final verses, we discover Ruth becomes the great grandmother of King David, who will dramatically shape the history of God's people and sets the pattern for great David's greater son, his descendant in the flesh, Jesus. God is not absent, but is at work behind the scenes. God uses human initiative and resourcefulness. While God has been at work, we see that at the same time, human ingenuity and resourcefulness are integral to the unfolding of God's plan. Chapter two, verse two, it is Ruth who takes the initiative to go out with Naomi's blessing and glean in the fields. It is Ruth's devotion and integrity which have gained her a reputation and give her recognition in Boaz's eyes. In fact, Boaz, is, Boaz affirms, may the Lord repay you for what you have done. Then there is Boaz's own decision to harvest the fields at that time, his kindness and generosity to Ruth, and that moves the story along. And to this, we can add Naomi's and Ruth's ingenuity for the drama on the threshing floor in chapter three. So God uses human initiative and resourcefulness. And then finally, we see God works through the everyday. You may have noticed that while God is at work all along in the book of Ruth, there is no sign, no great display of the miraculous. Yes, the supernatural has been present all along, but working through the very natural unfolding of events, God has been able to do things through ordinary everyday interactions and occurrences. And as we have seen earlier, it was the faithfulness and dedication, resourcefulness and ingenuity, risk-taking and, and sacrifice of his people, Naomi and Ruth, that allowed God to accomplish his will. They lived out God's laws in their lives and relationships. Their obedience to him in the small details of life reflects the pattern of Jesus, from whom it was said in childhood, from childhood in Luke 2, he grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and people. He'd done no miracles, 
that his obedience for 30 years laid the foundation for the subsequent miracles to take place. God worked through the faithfulness of God, through, through the faithfulness of Ruth and Naomi and the people around them to great effect. God works through the everyday. Well, all this reveals that there is obviously an intertwining of God's design and human activity throughout this book. And one commentator writes, again, David Atkinson, here is the story of Ruth we see clearly illustrated. In, in the story of Ruth, we see clearly illustrated the truth that God's gracious providence does not override human decision and human action. This view of God is far from static and deterministic. It is living, dynamic, and responsive. What do I mean? I'm now going to use an example or an illustration of a friend of mine, Ramez Atala, who's head of the Bible Society in Egypt. See, a lot of people view God's will for us as being very static, a set line from A to B. A is where we are now, and B is where God wants to take us, and there is only one way of getting there. If you fall off that line, you have left God's will and you better get back on the original directory, otherwise you're gonna have nothing but trouble. Now, this is a very limited and fatalistic view of how God works. It is not Christian, it is not biblical, as we have seen from Ruth's story. It restricts human freedom and it limits God. I prefer to see God's working with us in a much more interactive way. You see, you can begin with point A, where you are now, and you end up with point B, which is where God wants you to be. However, there are many ways to get there. And there are pitfalls along the way. Areas where you can't stray, which are outside God's general will for us as laid out in scripture. There are also crucial division points in our lives, such as puberty or marriage. And if you hit those at the wrong angle, you might end up in one of the pits. However, by God's grace, we can emerge repentant from the pit, suffering some consequences for the error and delay, but able to start again. We then continue, but on a different route, still heading for God's overall goal for us, which is our transformation into the likeness of Christ. In this way, God doesn't mind if you take one route or the other, as long as we are within the scriptural boundaries for right living. Now, to me, this reveals a God who is far larger than the one who has only one set way for us to go. The God of the Bible is the one who can take all of what we give him and work it into his plan. This is what he did with Israel and the characters of scripture. Adam and Eve sinned, resulting in God bringing in plan B, which involved the sacrifice of his own son. Abraham's taking things into his own hands resulted in the birth of Ishmael, which caused great tension, but resulted in another great people. David committed adultery, but from that later union, Jesus descended from the flesh. God is so vast that he can see the results of every decision we make, even bad ones, and adjust things accordingly, all the while keeping within the overall goals he has set for us. He is the God who is able to take into account an infinity of human decisions and natural incidents. 
this is not the God about whom we comment, we comment after a tragedy, it must have been God's will. God allows things to happen and weave them into his plan for us, but they are not all of his design. Elaborating on the uh, weaving analogy, our lives are like a tapestry, the threads of which God takes from what we offer, the good and the bad, from, and from his own working. From the back, it looks like a mass of tangled yarn, but from the front, it reveals a beautiful picture. The God of the Bible is not a static God, but a dynamic, living being who can achieve his will while at the same time interacting with ours. And why does he act in this way? Because God is a God of grace. Grace is primarily a relationship word. Grace means above all a gracious relationship between God and us. For example, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, Genesis 6. And it was God graciously finding Noah and inviting him to share in a gracious relationship with himself. God's grace does not act upon us to remove our freedom. God's gracious relationship creates our freedom. God, is, God allows us the freedom to respond to him or not. God's grace takes seriously our responsibilities and our decisions. God's grace calls us to stand up straight before him in Christ, freed from sin to live out his image in the power of the Holy Spirit as his sons and daughters. We see this theme of grace echoed in chapter two of Ruth. The greetings exchanged between Boaz and his workers in verse four, the Lord be with you, the Lord bless you, are more than mere convention. We hear echoes of Psalm 129 verse eight, the blessing of the Lord be upon you, we bless you in the name of the Lord. Numbers 624, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. This God who blesses us is the one who enters into gracious relationship with us. The law's provision, uh, Leviticus 23, 22, followed by Boaz in this chapter to leave gleanings after the harvest for the poor is part of God's design for his society to have gracious concern for the needy. Ruth herself regards herself as, as dependent upon grace. Verse 10, why have I found favor in your eyes? She says to Boaz chapter two. And Boaz acts graciously towards Ruth when he instructs his workers to purposely leave grain for her, thus going far beyond the requirements of the law. But it is Naomi and Boaz who most clearly affirm God's graciousness. Naomi explains the Lord, verse 20 of chapter two, the Lord has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. Boaz says to Ruth, verse 12, may you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. God's wings imply a God who brings safety, refreshment, stillness, help, relaxation, and hope. See those from the Psalms. This is the gracious God who acts behind the scenes in the book of Ruth. He graciously weaves the threads of human initiative and resourcefulness with his divine will to produce a trapeze, a tapestry of great worth. So God's sovereignty and human character. These are the two great themes I see in the book of Ruth. And what's more, it leaves us the readers with a challenge. As with Ruth and Naomi, 
through godly character and faithfulness in the little everyday things, we are called to live out the life of Christ in the power of the spirit in our lives and relationships through our service. God is not absent, but works behind the scenes in and through us. This is what we discover in the book of Ruth. Uh, so now is a time for uh, discussion and questions. Um, yeah, just a quick question, Brett, to get people uh, settled into their yes. questions. So why do you think a woman wrote it? Just because it's a perspective and is there anything that, uh, anything um, controversial about that? Sorry, why is what? Sorry? Why do you think Ruth is uh, written by a woman? Is that controversial at all? And is it simply because it seems like a female perspective? And what does that mean? Well, we just assume that all the books are written by men, right? Um, and uh, it's, uh, it is possible because it, it describes a woman's perspective, um, that it was only a woman who would have, who'd be able to see that perspective in the light of the culture from which they come. I see. That's what I would say. I mean, it's, it's, it's pure conjecture, of course, but um, it is interesting that, that it's very, even in the book of Esther, um, it, it doesn't, I mean, Esther is kind of dealt with on the side. She's not as much a central character at all as Ruth and Naomi. Mm. She's kind of, you know, she's used by everybody for Esther. So it, it is a conjecture, but I think it, it points that way. Thank you, Brad. I really enjoyed rereading this book again uh, this week. It's such a lovely story. Like it's just a, I mean, it's it's well crafted from like a literary perspective. It's it's just like a joy to read. It's it's really fun. You should say that you're speaking as a woman who's uh, trained. It, it, you have a degree in English. Right. That's right. Yeah. So it's it's not like one of those bubble books that you kind of have to slog through. It's like oh, next chapter, next chapter. <laughs> so yeah, I, I enjoyed getting back into it again. Um, the question that came up for me while I was reading it was, and then I, I did some research, but it sort of seemed inconclusive, was whether Ruth and Orpah were barren because they, it seemed like they didn't have children for 10 years while they were in Moab. Um, and then I noticed the comment that the Lord opened Ruth's womb or something like that, Lord, Lord helped her conceive or whatever. Um, but, but some people, one person was saying, well, the, the, the husbands were kind of sickly, so maybe that's why, or who, I mean, who knows, but I was just, just curious, like, why that was specifically mentioned and, uh, or if it had something to do with yes. it. Um, it, it. It could indeed be that, that uh, um, because obviously the, the whole story would have been affected if they'd had a child earlier on, because yeah. uh, if, it's, if it was a male, he would have inherited everything. Um, no, it's a, it's a worthwhile uh, speculation, I think. Uh, I, I, I don't know. Yeah, well, interesting, you. interesting point. I wanted to make a, a point, Brett, of your observation that the Bible is mostly men-centered. And I, I think that also the church has continued that. When you think of the first the evangelist being Mary, you don't, she's never really... Uh, equated with the same as the apostles and the disciples. But the first person Jesus came to in two incidences, one to God came to Mary first. And Mary was really interesting in her response. She didn't say, okay, I'll wait until I get married and I'll get pregnant. She said, I've never slept with a man. She wasn't 
bent in her identity to Joseph. She said, I'm here on my own. How are we going to do this? But I think also the church has downplayed the places in the Bible where women are really central to the story. Yes, you see that actually coming in in the early church. Um, I didn't mention, I, I had some other notes, but um, in, the, in the early church, there is uh, Phoebe, who's a deaconess uh, um, of the church in Centria. She's probably sent with the, with the message. You have Lydia and so on. And, and then there are, uh, you know, Pliny writing to Trajan says that, uh, hey, I, you know, he's a governor. I have these uh, two women who are slaves and they're women. Uh, you know, they're leaders in this, in this Christian group, you see. Um, but it, it, it is quite possible as also, for instance, when we looked at the issues of, of heaven and the resurrection, the, the re resurrected life, it was very quickly in the church overcome by the traditional uh, platonic or uh, more classical views of the two level universe with going up to heaven and heaven is kind of a new spiritual reality rather than God's rule. Um, and, and heaven comes down to earth. So I think those are things which actually crept in um, uh, because of the culture around. And Christianity, in one sense, is very dangerous. Because Christianity is an incarnational religion, you, you, because you really want to get involved where the people are, it also runs the risk of taking on too much of the surrounding culture. So we always have to balance that up. It is a real challenge to us, actually. Um, I have a question from somebody. Yes. And they're wondering about the, uh, the Kinsman Redeemer, the, the one that was first in line. Yes. And they decided not to marry Ruth. They right. were willing to take the land, but not to marry. Not Ruth, yes, right. And I was curious about why was it okay with... Why would they not want to marry Ruth? And the question, though, is, is how would the fellow Israelites or Bethlehemites viewed the person's decline of that request that would they have said, oh, that's a good call because she's a Moabite, a foreigner? Mm -hmm. Or would they have thought, wow, this guy's shirking his duties. Boaz is really great for picking it up. Yes, I have no idea. Um, it's it's uh, obviously there is something hidden here, an early Israelite um, legal practice, because in that book uh, here, obviously the book was written much later, but it mentions about, for instance, it talks about um, that. Uh, Would risk his inheritance. Yes, risk his inheritance. But it also it talks about. Um, now, in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So there's obviously a different, um, you know, th this is a pre-monarchy uh, pre, uh, uh, period. And um, there was something which triggered this, obviously, this, this closer relative. Uh, from not marrying uh, Naomi because of some sort of maybe the child born to them uh, would also in in inherit his. I don't know. I don't know. But there's obviously some uh, interesting legal issues behind there. And that's what that, that's what scared him off. I wonder if it's also possible to, to think sometimes we have decisions where there are two goods and we choose one good rather than the other. And it's not because we're bad to choose one or the other. It's a, it's a very good point, yes. So maybe um, the guy is not 
unvirtu unvirtuous. Right. But, right. But for but, some other reason. Well, like Elimelech and Malon and Chilean, he's kind of a bit part, right? <laughs> right. Um, but but Ruth is depicted as being very very well received. I mean, obviously Boaz has heard her reputation, and the women in the in the later chapters say how wonderful Ruth is, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So, can I just add one more point to that, guys? Is that when Bo Boaz goes to speak to this man, he doesn't say, "I want to marry Ruth." He's really wise and saying it's all about property. And oh, by the way, we're going to tag <laughs> this along. You know, <laughs> exactly. It seems like he knew how to lay it out. Yeah, he's smart. Yeah. He's very crafty. I thought that was brilliant. Yeah. I mean, poor women, they get shifted around with the property, right? But I mean, you know, that was, that happened up until recently. Mm. You know, I mean, you know, all those Jane Austen novels and everything else and the, you know, where the woman owns the property and you, you, you marry in and you, and you get, I know it's Jane Austen, but it, you know, the, Liz could tell us, but in various, you know, all these schemes, I mean, even, you know, Downton Abbey, it's because Lady Mary is a woman, that who she marries is so crucial. And of course, the whole story hinges on that. I think, I think it's my understanding, though, is too, it's not just like about, you know, men taking advantage of women and, and just like, it's actually protection for them because otherwise they wouldn't have, you know, children to care for them in their old age or like security, like, like you were saying, like, it's not like there was a welfare system. You can go on. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, so that's why Jesus would... Us, but that's how it functioned in that culture. Yeah, that's why Jesus, uh, the woman, uh, the widow of Nain, and, and, the, and, and her, her says her only son dies, you see. So, so Jesus resurrects him because he was only, uh, yeah. But the only reason that they need protection is that the whole system is rotten. Yes. The, men, the men get everything and then they say, we'll protect you. So really it's a challenge on that system. So that's why this book is such a, a revolutionary approach. And this is an ancient book. I mean, even if it had been written at the exile, it, rec it records things from earlier on. And, and you know, this is part of a, man, a man's world. It's amazing. You know, I would add to this that, um, you know, Boaz and Ruth act very shrewdly. And there are times when Christians think that they should act naively because that's the more innocent way. But Jesus says that we should be innocent as doves and shrewd as serpents. Yes, but a lot of yes. people think shrewdness is somehow a part of worldliness or a part of not being virtuous, not being transparent. But in a world that, you know, James Brown, it's a man's world or, or I mean, it's, and it's not even just a man's world. It, it's a sinful world. And, and those who have power, you have to negotiate in ways where you're, um, and I think Jesus calls us to be Christians who remain innocent and yet shrewd. Uh, and sometimes that's hard for people to imagine how you can be both. And yet Ruth and Boaz are both throughout the story. Yes. And, and there's also, I mean, that's one aspect of the uh, doings on the uh, threshing floor so as not to give any hint that a woman was there, that there was any impropriety, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. And if anybody, I can say it now, if anybody wants to know about the uncovering of the feet, I have three pages of notes. <laughs> there is somebody who's asked that question. Probably. Okay, okay. I will give you this, okay. I'm reading now from the Oxford Annotated Bible Commentary. It's unclear whether, whether the expression uncover his feet 
implies sexual intercourse, that a threshing floor with its piles of grain afforded considerable privacy is evidence from its use as a haunt for prostitutes. That's from Hosea. Moreover, the word feet, raglian, occurs in some instance as a, a euphemism for genitals. So see Isaiah 6 verse 2, you know, the, the, the seraphim they covered and so on. But the word here signifies the place of his feet, margalo. It's a different word. And so uh, uncovering at his feet or the place of the feet. So it is actually a, a, a more literal thing. And um, the, the comments go on. I'd be very careful about making assumptions given the moral character attributed to both Boaz and Ruth, especially given Boaz's care to make sure everything is done properly in chapter four. Mm. So I have other comments if you want, but it's... Uh... Wouldn't I like to, I think it's interesting, uh, chapter two, verse eight and nine, where Boaz has to tell Ruth to make sure she goes to one field where she can tell, essentially, tell the, tell the men there not to molest her. Yes. So presumably the other women there working in that field don't have that, you know, and they're just there to be used. Yeah. No, I think it's because she was a foreigner that she was at risk. They, they wouldn't, they wouldn't have abused a Jewish woman. Yeah, that could be. Unless they'd also been destitute themselves, you see, because that was the only way they had to get uh, provisions. It was a pretty rough situation. Remember the, the times of the judges, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Yeah. Like today. Yeah. <laughs> But I'm curious about um, what you were saying. Just I've heard you use that analogy before, and I really like it about the kind of areas where thou shalt not go, and then and then you know that you can go. We can go in different paths around those areas in your life. Um, but just especially with a story in mind too. Um, like it doesn't say that Naomi and Ruth are are praying about like who Ruth should marry or whatever. And I've, this is a conversation I've had with a lot of friends about you know like friends who are like well, I don't want to marry him until God tells me specifically. And, and I had one friend who was praying about the guy that she was dating and she felt like God told her, well, you, you can make a choice, <laughs> kind of like you can choose. It's not right or wrong. Yes. But, but I'm just kind of curious to hear your thought about like, because uh, yeah, you say like it's not necessarily sinful, but what does discernment look like in that picture? Yes, yes. Well, it may not be evil, but is there like something in between that, you know? Yeah, well, I, I think it was Brendan Kavanaugh I think it was him, uh, a psychologist, professor at Concordia University, and is a Catholic priest as well. He said that um, you could probably find 10 people you would find you'd be compatible with. You, you know, you could be exposed to 10 people, mm -hmm. but you commit to one and you commit yourself all your life, even though number, like it might, might be number five on the list, but then number three comes along and you say, oh, no, I should have. Well, th th that's the place where you shouldn't go because you have committed, you see. So, um, plus, I think it's really important, that, and we're facing this right now in Central Saanich, with the building of these uh, 39 units to uh, house the, the people who've been in the tent city downtown. Now, oh, you know, horrors and horrors. Well, these, this is an opportunity for people, they've fallen into the pit. Okay, are we going to cooperate to help them 
help themselves to get out of the pit. Like they're not doomed to be homeless people forever. I had a person in my congregation in, uh, in Winnipeg who has, uh, is afflicted by epilepsy and he was on the street for a while. But by God's grace, he was brought off the street. So it's, it's possible to start again. And, and that's our God of grace. Our God gives us new starts. Uh, and of course, the whole thing with Adam and Eve, they have a new, there's a new possibility, but it's, it's, uh, it's a long way back. Yeah, I guess my question was just like, what is it, you know, is there still room for a kind of discerning, like it's, I don't know, like something may not be like the best decision, you know, like you could marry someone and it might, it, like, could it just, could it be like not the greatest decision to marry this person, but not necessarily like sinful? Yes. Like is kind of that middle area, you know? And well, well that's why I, I think we have to believe that we have a God who can take what we give him and work it out. You see that, that even, you know, if, if we choose the lesser good, that God can still use that. And it's not the end of the world. And I think too, that counsel is important. Like Naomi was a really good counselor for Ruth in her dating life. Right. So I think that when we make major decisions, especially older people and wiser people, it's really smart to run it by those people. Right, one of the, th the words that you've used uh, as a, a bit of a linchpin for this has been grace. Yes. Um, and I've been involved in some email correspondence in the last few days about uh, essentially the free will issue. And you sort of spoke one time about the contrast between uh, God um, coming to man, coming to us, as opposed to us going to God. And, and you bridged that, as I recall, by saying that it was by God's grace. Yes. That sound right? Absolutely, absolutely. It's the same it's in the Ten Commandments. I am the God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, do not do this, do not do that, and so on. It, it's, it's a relational thing, first of all. I came and rescued you. And where are you? You know, God came looking for Adam and Eve. They had hidden in the, hidden in the bush. And we always hide. Oh, how could God? Oh, I've mucked it up. Now God's trying to find me. Oh, awful. I, I just see the Bible as, from, as I think I mentioned in that, in that recording me, but from chapter 3 to, to, to Revelation, from Genesis 3 to Revelation uh, 20, it's basically God's rescue mission. And, and, and it's interesting, this is, uh, in, in Liz, that Abraham makes mistakes, right? Abraham jumps the gun. He has a child by Hagar. Now, we are suffering the results of that sin today the tension between the arabs and the israelis now that is not to say that the arabs are a horrible race out of that mistake god brought forth a beautiful people the arab race but abraham's era has brought the tension uh, david's era david's era in uh, david's sin in with bathsheba um, that was, you know, uh, made him much a weaker father and, and he couldn't discipline his sons. And so you have all this horrible 
situation within his family, a dysfunctional family if you ever saw one. Uh, you know, Isaac and his favoring Jacob and Esau, dysfunctional family. Jacob and his family, dysfunctional family. <laughs> oh, man, and that's that's what we are. You know, I mean, God takes people like Abraham who lies and and works on things, but it's you know God trusted anyway, and and David trusted God even though he did those things. We do those things, but our hope is in God until we come back to God. Such a such a a, a picture of hope to me. But was Bohab a descendant of Rahab? Um. Uh, no, he was just, no, but it's equally bad. <laughs> I mean, are equally bad, but he is actually descendant of Tamar. Okay. Who, who was Judah's daughter-in-law. Now she was a Canaanite, interestingly. By the way, all those women mentioned in Matthew chapter one, there are four women mentioned. They are all the, they're all foreigners. <laughs> it's uh, Rahab the Canaanite. Um, oh, sorry, I beg your pardon. You are quite, wait a minute. Yes, Rahab, yes, 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 I beg your pardon. She is there, absolutely right, you're right, you're right. I thought so. She, she was Boaz's, I mean, she's pictured as Boaz's grandmother, whether she was a great-grandmother or whatever, but it was Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. That's right, yeah, that's it. Thank you for pointing that out. No problem. And her profession was one of those uh, questionable professions, but she is located as one of the ones that had faith, right? You know, I remember somebody saying this and I never forgot it, that because Rahab was his grandmother, he might've been an outsider as well, Boaz. And that's why he was so sensitive to people who were outsiders. I love that thought, you know? Brilliant, that is brilliant. Mm -hmm. But you see, you have Tamar, who's the Canaanite, uh, and, and then Ruth marries one of, uh, Rahab marries one of her descendants. Then you have um, uh, Uriah's wife. He isn't even mentioned by name, but Uriah's wife who was a Hittite. You assume that she was not a Jewish. She could have been. So were these examples of, of like intermarriages that were not supposed to happen because like, didn't God say, don't marry, like don't marry, intermarry? With yes, other yes, 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 yes. I, mean, I, I think, yeah. I think we take that as a general rule. I mean, this is, you know, it's, it's um, you know, that Israel is not supposed to mix in with the local nations because of the danger of idolatry, but it happened. But is it, yes, very interesting. But that's why Matthew, even though it's the most Jewish gospel, it is also the most missionary minded because it includes right in the Jewish genealogy, the three or four foreign women. Which is, of course, Jesus would have seen that, and he would have seen that as a clue, obviously, with Abraham being, through him, all nations will be blessed, of course. But these other clues are there. Brilliant. Hey, Brett, one thing that I want to, um, I guess, make a comment about, maybe you could speak on, it, that the book of Ruth, in, in terms of God's sovereignty, there are lots of people who come through Labrie that feel that there are coincidences in life that or happenstance and they fail to see that God is at work behind the scenes. 
and you, you, you drew that picture of the loose threads and, uh, and Ida Schaefer herself, who started Labrie, spoke of a tapestry that we only see loose threads, but on the other side of the river uh, um, in heaven, we'll see the, the tapestry that has been woven. But we have become so bent or ensconced in a naturalistic vision of life where everything is cause and effect and we don't see an outside mover that I think Ruth is a wonderful presentation to the modern mind that says no actually coincidences point not just to coincidence but to a mover behind the scenes yes not to say that everything that happens you know Maybe I got that parking lot because God wanted me, but I should also say that I didn't get that parking lot because God wanted me. In fact, there was uh, a football player. He was just a place. He was a kicker for this football team, and he scored five goals, five field goals in a single game, which broke the, the record. And he was interviewed, and he said, you know, I just want to thank God, you know, for all this. Well, the next week, he broke the record for most missed field goals in a game which also tells you how bad their team is because they could never make a touchdown. It was my alma mater, so I won't say it. But uh, anyway, they interviewed him and he said, I just want to give God the glory for all the field goals I did miss. Uh -huh. It was God last week and God is God this week. And I just thought that was an awesome response. And, and he was a part of our Christian fellowship. So I was a bit proud that, of, that, of that answer. But yeah, I just think that this story is a, is a great story story to try to unveil that God is actually behind the scenes. I don't know if you could think of this story in an apologetic way or an apologetical way, but, uh, but I'd like your comments. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I, I think very much. Well, you see, this is like, the, it's the Bible in miniature, really. Because all the whole story, as I mentioned, of, you know, with Adam and Eve sinning, with Abraham and everything else. I mean, it's all God's weaving our sinful selves in with his plan. Uh, you, you know, his setting up, you know, his original plan wasn't for a king. And then he gave them a king. So King David was the model for the Messiah, the great shepherd. But then the kings failed. You know, it's, it's all, I mean, God just takes these. I mean, I think he's amazing. And, and he, he weaves them, the, the them in. So, so I just you know, very much think that this book shows us God is at work behind the scenes, but very much uses our own character, our own faithfulness, resourcefulness, etc., with Ruth and Naomi as examples. I mean, it's amazing. I mean, I love it when it says, as it happened. <laughs> I mean, that was brilliant. It seems that it would be good for us to be able to start telling our stories of yeah. saying, you know, uh, you know, and I'm not a person who wants to be so super spiritual that I started assigning God to every detail, even though I do believe he is sovereign over every detail. But learning how to tell the story, and you did mention the quote of faith is those things that make sense in reverse. Yes, yes. Well, I have that because that's the way I know God's will from looking back. I mean, I get frustrated when people like and I, I mean, I envy people when they can say things, they give a prophecy, you know, and they say, I see this, I see this, but I don't see it. <laughs> but when I look back, I say, oh, Lord, that's what you did. And, and I have an example of that. I don't know if you want me to tell you about it, but 
of even a prophecy that was given, which was basically, I only saw true in reverse. Which yeah. I actually think many of the many of the prophecies like Jeremiah, Isaiah, and so on were seen later on. And that was because their prophecies were confirmed. And so then they were believed, whereas the false prophets weren't, you see. But, but I have that exactly in my uh, history going to uh, Bristol uh, to serve as a chaplain at Trinity College. And uh, we had a, um, a prophetic conference at our church in Winnipeg in 2010, I think, no, nine, and, uh, or 10. And because many of our people, we, we were charismatic church, evangelical, charismatic, sacramental, but we had many people who were, um, uh, who had been in abusive charismatic situations. So they were very leery. So, and they were very leery of somebody coming and saying, the Lord says this, the Lord says that. Well, we had this couple come uh, and they were absolutely amazing. And they would teach on the, on the prophetic and, and on good, just good Christian living. And then they would have words for people. And it was so rapid. They would just go rapid, rapid, rapid. We had to record the prophecies. I, we, they, they did it with 70 of our parishioners and 20 others. Because I wanted to be there for every single one of my parishioners because I was worried if they said, you know, you will get married or you will do this. Well, the, they weren't so specific, except when it, they, they were for about three or four others. But, but when it came to me, both prophesied over me, and the man said, you're going to go to Brazil. And I said, oh, I said, you know, because you know, I was near retirement, and uh, I'd always supported the South American Missionary Society. But Brazil, I mean, I, I never wanted to go to South America. You, you might know in my travels, I'd never gone to South America, <laughs> you know. And I said, well, Lord, if you want me to go to Brazil, I'll go to Brazil, you know. Anyway, um, the next year I meet uh, George Cavour, uh, who is the principal of Trinity College in Bristol in England and uh, various things and so on. And he said to me just a year before I was to, or a few months before I was to retire, Brett, how would you like to come to Trinity and work with me at Trinity College? And so I ended up going to Trinity College Bristol. And it was only when I came back after that summer, that, that first summer, I was there for three and a half years, I was at a sacred circle. And the sacred circle is where the native, the uh, indigenous Christians and the First Nations Christians come together to seek the Lord's will, to work on healing and restoration and so on. So God is present in these things. Um, we uh, uh, settler people, non-native people, we're just supposed to be there to listen. And that was, I was happy to be there to listen. So we're listening to God. And I'm listening. This is about... Um, a few weeks after I come back from Trinity in England. And then I realized, Brazil, Brazil, maybe that was Bristol. Maybe he heard it wrong. <laughs> now, maybe I'm still going to go to Brazil. I don't know. <laughs> but I would believe that that was a prophecy, but that God worked it through. Because if I had heard it as Bristol, when I met George, when I would have met George Kabur from Trinity College Bristol, I would have engineered it to get an invite to go to, Brist to Trinity College Bristol. But precisely because I didn't hear it as Bristol, and it was clearly Brazil, that was obviously, it was in a sense, a failed prophecy. And uh, you see that in, in some of the Old Testament prophets, these veiled prophecies, which have, uh, anyway, 
but that's my experience of seeing something in reverse. Well, it's, uh, you know, there was a, just to speak of Brazil for a moment, Brazilian Labrie, the um, Labrie is, we believe for God to be living and active. And a part of our mission is to say, be open-handed for God to provide finances, students, workers, in order for uh, people to see God demonstrate himself, his, his living self. But we're not charismatics uh, in, in what most people think. However, uh, in, but we are open to God acting. And there was a woman in Brazil uh, this couple, and they were looking for a property for Labrie, and, and she had a vision of a yellow tree, a very rare tree in Brazil, and uh, there was that yellow tree on the property, and she, and she told her husband, I think that we're going to have this property with this yellow tree, and he thought, okay, okay, um, I'm glad you had this dream, but forgot about it. And three years later, they got this property and, the, and they, and it was just at the season where they walked onto the property and that tree was yellow and full bloom. Uh, and so, um, so when I, when I hear people who are not given to hysterics, if I can put it bluntly, um, and are more reticent, then I put a lot of weight and into it. And then when it does happen, you think, okay, God had something specific for them. It doesn't mean that it's a, a world revelation where the end of the world is nigh, but you know, there's something of a reassurance in a simple prophecy. Well, are there any, uh, okay, Thomas. No, I just, I was going to say, since we know that Brett is in no way given to hysteresy, he, he is, I believe his prophecy. <laughs> He's like the calmest person I think I've ever met. <laughs> well, thank you, Andrea. If I say that about myself, <laughs> and I haven't met him, but I mean, just from being here, he's pretty calm and cool. Oh, you, should see him, you should see him at my lunch discussions. It's wild. <laughs> <laughs> you should see him running a camp for four hundred kids or whatever it was. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> Thanks, Brett. You're most welcome. Well, thank thanks you, Brett. For, yeah, thanks for being on the call. <laughs> thank you for uh, the wisdom, the insight, and the expertise, and also just the faithfulness of looking at the scriptures with us. Uh, so we are going to take a break for a month. Oh. We will begin back in June. In June. So, uh, and, Hopefully you know, we'll be open. Hopefully we'll be open. I mean, we're looking at American television, you know, live reality TV, and they look like they're all back to normal. Where we're up here, it's third lockdown. So I don't think that's the kind of normal we want. <laughs> I'm okay with that, Rex. No, I've been American reality TV. <laughs> oh, I see. I see. It was the super. It was the NFL draft, and nobody, you know, everybody was normal. Oh. <laughs> I mean, if you want to see American reality TV, you just need to put a camera in my, my living room and you'll <laughs> American reality TV. Okay, well, thank you, Brett. And, um, May I close in prayer? Is that all right? Please do. Yeah, please yeah. do.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for this amazing little book. Thank you, Lord, that you worked with the authors and, and uh, got it written in the way it was written. And we thank you, Lord, for what it has to say to us about you and about how you value us and how you are so gracious towards us. Thank you, Lord, for uh, using us as part of your plan. Help us, Lord, to be faithful like Naomi and Ruth and allow your plan to work through us. For Jesus' sake. Amen.